This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today, we're going to be exploring the afterlife in a whole new way, talking about a new science of the afterlife. Now, why a science? Well, it's because we have lost touch with a big part of our own reality, with our souls. We can't feel them anymore. And because we can't feel our souls, it feels like they're not there. That's why we have created this enormous uh, infra medical infrastructure, because we're desperately afraid of dying. And there's nothing wrong with in prolonging your life. It's a wonderful blessing. But there's also nothing wrong with not fearing the afterlife. Let's get into it with our author today, Dan Drayson. Dan is an old friend. We have been friends for many, many years, and you are looking at the reason that my audio books are so beautifully read, because he is my audio editor. He has a masterful ear, and believe you me, uh, he is a hard taskmaster. Uh, I have learned from experience that the least little cough will be noticed, and that's great. So welcome to Dreamland, Dan. Thank you, Whitley. It's great to be with you today. Well, it, it, thanks. Dan is a documentary, award-winning documentary filmmaker. He's been a photographer and media producer for longer than I dare say, more than 60 years, it says here. Um, uh, he's been featured in the, uh, as featured in his documentary, Calling Earth. He's been actively investigating the field of afterlife communication through traditional mental and physical mediumship, as well as modern electronics, certainly since, ever since I knew you. And that's at least 30 years, Dan. Wow. So here yeah. we are with a new time, time goes by, doesn't it? Dan, it does. It does indeed. Uh, now, let me ask you this. Let's start, as we often do with a new guest, at the very beginning. Something very special must have sparked your interest in the afterlife. Uh, why? What did? Well, it's a combination of many things. Um, I've always been fascinated with what goes on beyond the veil, as it were. Um, and... I should explain that from my perspective, um, you know, what is what is the veil? To me, the veil is simply our senses, our physical senses, which are, are tuned to a very, very narrow slice of the spectrum of reality. You know, our, they're, they're, they're suited to our functioning in the physical world, and that's fine. But there's so much beyond that. Um, you know, our sciences, even our physical sciences, although they haven't actually extended our senses, they've sent us an important, important message that there's more. We've been able to build instruments that look into uh, the greater spectrum of, of uh, light, sound, and, and uh, many levels of, of vibration that underlie our physical plane, our physical reality. And that should tell us that there may be even more. And that when we however we do it, when we focus our, our attention beyond the limits of our physical senses, whether it's intellectually or experientially, through meditation, through medicines, and so on, 
um, we're beginning to um, push the limits of what we can sense and experience directly. And that, that experience is really the, the foundation of everything else. You know, our experience is our consciousness in action. And so um, that, that's been my, my attitude. And I've, I've felt that, uh, always felt that um, our, our scientific methods and our scientific attitudes can help us expand our horizons and be more willing and, com and more comfortable with extending our, our sense of reality. Now this, <clears throat> for me personally, began really in my childhood when I experienced a number of precognitive dreams. And uh, I couldn't, I couldn't explain it. I couldn't understand it, but it was, it was sufficient to let me know that in the theater of life, stuff goes on backstage. That there, that there are aspects of of a, a greater reality that we're not normally tuned into or, or privy to. Um, that led to an interest, and I'm. I was born in the early 1940s. I, I just turned 81 last year. I can hardly believe it myself. Yeah, um, I know the feeling. But, right. So I, anyway, I grew up in the days before the uh, the curtain had come down on the UFO question. Back in the 40s, it was uh, quite a, a respectable topic of discussion. And there was actually, I grew up on the East Coast in, in New Jersey, and there was a, a, a radio broadcast, a newscaster named Frank Edwards, who every evening would broadcast the news. And he would also give UFO sighting and landing reports, which were, was, you know, it was no big deal then. It was a, it was a really fascinating, interesting topic that, that was in the news. You know, this is before the curtain came down in, in the 1950s. So that caught my attention. You know, here was another aspect of reality that we either we couldn't explain or that was um, socially or politically um, taboo. That piqued my interest. I became um, very avidly involved in the field of UFO investigation. I'd had a number of, over the years, I had a number of sightings and interesting experiences myself. And um, that led, or that, that fueled um, a, a more sort of avid interest in, you know, what, what's, what actually is going on now that, that we are, um, that we may have inklings of, but that our, our culture and our society and our, our established religions and so on um, have, have um, in a way, they've sort of cluttered our perspective. And so my, one of my um, disciplines, you might say, is to try to see through as much of that as possible. Now, regarding the afterlife in particular, um, this came up for me in the 1990s when I met um, a fellow named Mark Macy, <clears throat> who lives in Boulder, Colorado. Mark, <clears throat> excuse me, had, had just uh, written a book about instrumental transcommunication, which is the communication from the afterlife through modern electronics. And I was frankly a, a bit skeptical at first, uh, but then I started to uh, study the topic, met people who were practicing this as a, as a discipline and as a means of, of communicating with their departed um, loved ones and found that it was, it was quite uh, a legitimate practice and, and highly evidential because it's, it's quite physical um, and can't be denied. So um, 
Later, I teamed up with my co-producer, Tim Coleman. We um, traveled across the United States and to several European countries um, to produce two documentary films. The first one is called Calling Earth, and it's, it focuses on uh, the practice of communicating with the other side through electronics, mostly from the other side to us through electronics. The second film was called Skoll, The Afterlife Experiment. And this um, documented um, an experiment that took place in the late 1990s in a tiny English village named Skoll. It's about a half hour northeast of Cambridge, um, in which uh, two couples for a period of five years held um, sessions um, totaling 500 sessions over five years in which they um, communicated with a team on the other side and they and this team worked together to um, produce experiments that would uh, allow those on the other side to manifest uh, images and sounds and physical objects that could be recorded or preserved for further analysis. And this, uh, this experiment, the Skoll experiment, um, was, was documented in, in several books. It was in the press. Um, and Tim and I made this document, the only documentary, as far as I know, that's ever been made about it. So these were the two, in, in the course of making these films, of course, we met many people who had been doing some really fascinating work in all these areas. And um, that eventually led to my um, somewhat reluctantly <laughs> writing this book. Uh, a new science of the afterlife. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm. I've been hoping you would write a book for many years, as you know. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. It's uh, as I say in the intro to the book. It's writing is a tough grind, at least for me, and so I'm glad I pushed through it and, uh, and managed to get this out uh, middle of last year. One of the worst places in the world is the empty page. <laughs> Ten o'clock in the morning. I. I turn on my computer and there it sits the empty page but then again when the pages are all full then it's a beautiful experience uh now i'd like to get into a little bit more about the uh, it would go, we'll go back to the skull experiment in a few minutes but i would like to get a little bit more into the evp the electronic aspect of it and the reason of course is as you know the implant in my ear, uh, and I believe we corresponded when the two men came here uh, some year, about a year and a half ago, and explained to me how the implant worked and uh, how to use it. And they came at four o'clock in the morning. One of them was familiar to me for some unknown reason. The other one was not, but uh, they mentioned at the time that it had been developed by a man named Constantine they pronounced the name raw dive and i thought i and it, it took me a while and i realized it was constantine rodovay i'd like you to tell us a little bit about constantine rodovay because i think he designed this from the other side and i think this is a piece of technology from the world mm. of the dead not from aliens but tell us a little bit about constantine rodovay well uh, constantine Rodova. oh god i'm not La even going to go there no, he he spoke six languages, uh, including English, German, Latvian, French, etc. 
Um, he was a re remarkable man, um, uh, lived in, in various European countries, died in 1974. And he was uh, one of the most uh, successful and prolific experimenters in, in the electronic voice phenomenon. Uh, the phenomenon was actually, as far as we know, discovered by a, a Swede, a man named Friedrich Jurgensen, who was well known in his time as a, an actor and a, a documentary film producer, and a, even an opera singer, a multi-talented gentleman, who, um, <clears throat> with the introduction of the um, audio tape recorder in, in the late 1940s and early 50s, um, well, he he acquired a portable recorder, and one night he was out recording nocturnal bird sounds for a documentary he was working on. And uh, when he played back the tape, uh, in the in the in the silence between the bird sounds, he heard faint voices discussing nocturnal bird sounds, <laughs> and um, this got his attention. Um, at first, he kind of dismissed it as, well, maybe the machine was picking up a radio station and there happened to be a discussion about nocturnal bird sounds at the time. Uh, but then shortly after, he heard um, on one of his tapes the voice of his deceased mother calling him by his childhood nickname, Friedel. And this really got his attention. He realized at this point that something, something out of the ordinary was going on. He, he began to experiment and almost devoted the rest of his life to this work of, of um, trying to um, improve the quality of these transmissions and so on. He then was visited by Konstantin Raudova, uh, the gentleman we've been speaking of. Uh, Raudova worked with Jurgensen for a while and then went off and did a lot of his own experiments. Um, and uh, he, he published a book and actually a phonograph record called Breakthrough. Uh, which you'll hear part of in, in my film, Calling Earth, um, in which uh, a number of his, his um, electronic voices from the other side have been reproduced. And some of them are quite impressive, I must say. <clears throat> anyway, Raudova passed on in, in 74. And then, um, as happens with a number of these experiments who, experimenters who pass over, they then show up in the work of their colleagues. So Raudova then began, his voice began to show up in, in the work of other people who were uh, doing electronic voice work with, uh, with tape recorders um, and also directly through radios tuned between stations. Um, and some of this, some of, some of his um, communications are also quite impressive. He uh, made contact with uh, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, Mark Macy, some years ago. And um, in my film is a part of the recording that ensued, uh, which was crystal clear. It went on for un several minutes, which is unusual because these contacts are usually quite brief. Um, uh, Raudova then showed up in some of the video work of, of people who have experimented with, with video from the other side. Klaus Schreiber, for example, a, a German fellow who had um, it was he was he was bereaved having lost a number of his relatives in a relatively short period of time uh, so he started experimenting with EVP someone had mentioned it to him he experimented with it and the EVPs suggested that he started working with video now he he was trained as a saddlesmith he knew nothing of technology but uh, with the help of an electrical engineer he put together a video system that was able to display images of 
deceased people. Some of them were, were quite amazing, uh, quite impressive. Um, then when he passed on, he came through to a German physicist um, who had been doing work in this field uh, through, the, through a telephone. Made, he made a number of, of interesting and perfectly clear telephone conversations, which were recorded, and you'll hear those in my film as well. Um, what, what enables or impedes these communications is unclear to us. Some people feel, oh, the process works better during the waxing phase of the moon or certain times of the month or astrological configurations. We don't know. This has really never been nailed down scientifically. Um, but we know it works. We know that people are using this, these techniques to uh, receive information from their loved ones. And it's, it's, you know, it's one of many ways in which those on the so-called other side, and I'll say in a minute why I say so-called, um, those on the other side can communicate with us sometimes in very rudimentary ways by switching electrical devices on and off. I mean, this is, a lot of people have experienced this sort of thing. Um, but um, the, obviously, you know, to, to hear the, the person's actual voice uh, is, um, is, is a cut above just having lights blinking on and off. Um, I have, I have, I'm more of a journalist than a practitioner, and I don't have, the, I haven't had the patience to try this myself. But I have had various communications, particularly from uh, my late partner Jane, who died in 2007. Um, she, she was a the world's greatest technophobe, but managed in some way to um, switch on a clock radio one night uh, when I was thinking about her. The radio switched itself on, and the light of the clock glowed like the sun lit up the whole room and the radio went on for a few seconds by itself went off it's happened two or three times again in the ensuing several minutes um so that was fun yeah that's um, wonderful i've also had a number of conversations with her through some amazing mediums that i have worked with uh, we'll, we'll get yep. to the mediumship aspect of it in a few minutes but right now we've got to take a little break uh, we'll be right back. I'd like to tell you a wonderful story. It's a story about my wife, Anne. She passed on in 2015, an hour after she died. She began to come back. Now she's with us, and you can learn more about this and what it means to you and what it can mean to you so much more than you may think. Get the Afterlife Revolution. Get it today. You can read it on Kindle as a book. You can listen to me reading it as an audio book. It's a beautiful journey into a new way of understanding death and life. And yes, afterlife. There's a reason that Dr. Gary Schwartz, one of the great afterlife investigators in the world, says it's among the most convincing cases he has ever encountered. Afterlife revolution. Don't miss it. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there? In the stars? Or is it also somewhere else? 
is it in us, in you? Unknown country, join us today. Go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us. Join the questions. Join the search. Join the adventure. Unknowncountry.com There's no place like it in the world. We're talking to Dan Drayson, his book, A New Science of the Afterlife, Space, Time, and the Consciousness Code. The great value of this book is its groundedness. When you read this, you realize this almost has to be true. In fact, I'd say you realize it has to be true. It's There is someone there. There is an afterlife, and we're going there. And what do you think? You must, I mean, you, you've just admitted a, a, a disturbing truth about yourself. You're 80 years old. Let's face it. You don't 81, know. 81. Oh, 81. <laughs> well, I'm good. I'm farther behind you than I thought. I'm very <laughs> relieved. Um, in any case, uh, you're going to pass over soon. I mean, by a soon, I mean, someone with a long lifespan like ours, I, I can look back 40, 50 years easily in detail. And believe me, I know that I can look back a lot farther than I have left. And so can you. So what does the idea of passing over mean to you personally now, Dan? Well, um, I can hardly wait. <laughs> I feel, I'm so glad you said that. I feel exactly the same way. You know, I, I've had a number of encounters that, where the veil between the worlds collapses. And the one happened two nights ago. Uh, and I, I had been saying, I, in efforts to communicate with my, with Anne, with my wife, that are you still with me? And I'm not hearing from you much. Mm -hmm. And then I had what I think could be safely described as one of the vividest of all lucid dreams. And it was complex, but it began with Anne running up to me and throwing her arms around me, throwing her legs around me. Anne was rather short and she could have done that easily. And it was so powerful. I, I mean, it was a physical experience. I reeled back from the power of her striking me. It was really something. And I thought to myself, what is this veil between the worlds? Why is it so faint? Mm -hmm. Because it's actually, is it that we are blocking out this reality? Or it, tell us about this, what I've become to regard as the strangest thing of all, mm -hmm. that we are not in direct contact with our dead. Well, I, I have you know, my own particular perspective on it. Um, and that is, strange as it sounds, uh, I believe we are already in the afterlife. That our awareness itself is 
part of the fabric of what we call the afterlife. I, I actually don't, I'm not fond of the term afterlife particularly, because it's like that, that tail you pin on the end of the donkey. It's, you know, a little, a little extra thing that you, that you um, tack on to what's really real, you know. Um, but I think, I think one way to look at this is that we are already on the other side and that we're just looking through these bodies and these eyes. Uh, one sort of crude metaphor might be, uh, imagine a, a submarine commander looking through his periscope. And in that metaphor, our bodies would be the top of the periscope. You know, we, can, we, we have this limited range of, of vision and input, and, but, the, but the operator who's behind all of this can you know, operate it to some extent and direct it and so on and receive information through it. Um, and you know, if the, the periscope were to be damaged or shot off or whatever, um, the submarine commander would remain happily in his submarine. And you know, perhaps it's a, an, an inverted metaphor, but um, I think some, something like that is how it really works. That um, in my, the subtitle of, of my book is, um, has to do with the consciousness code. You know, and I had a little fun with that in the book. We're going to uh, discuss that in a bit, yeah. Right. And, and it's like our, our, our world is full of codes, you know, DNA codes and other, you know, and intentional codes, uh, encrypted information and so on. But basically a code is, is, um, is, is something that represents something behind it. And, um, you know, our, our culture's take on consciousness is, well, maybe it's something mechanistic, part of the brain's functioning and so on. Um, and certainly the brain is involved as, as a channel, as a mediator of our experience. But the consciousness itself is, is sort of hidden behind our culture's um, set of labels about it. In fact, who we are looking through these eyes and through our senses is our essence, our soul, our consciousness, uh, our being. And um, the, the physical aspect is just a, you know, a convenient channel of experience, you might say. But it's not the whole thing. And uh, we know that even ordinary people who haven't had um, experience of mediumship, as they approach their death, they can often see through clearly to the so-called other side and, uh, and realize that it's, it's in continuity to our experience of life. It's not really a separate domain. It's just at a higher frequency, you might say, which may be metaphorical or literal. I suspect it's literal that um, as, in, as in physics, as we know, um, everything comes down to energy. And a lot of it comes down to energy at different frequencies. And when you're locked into a particular band of frequencies, it's hard to send or receive outside of that band. Um, but it seems to me that, that uh, interfacing from our physical point of view, interfacing with the afterlife, communicating with the afterlife involves to one degree or another, a, a kind of a relaxation of our boundaries, our beliefs, um, and all these things that make our physical lives you know, workable and convenient, but aren't really well suited to communicating and interfacing with the greater reality. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's, that's, that's uh, how I put it to myself, at least, and how I've tried to communicate it in this book.
Well, I think it makes a great deal of sense. I think that we are in a in a in a in a very interesting situation, and the idea that the body is a sort of periscope gets me to the question of evil, uh, because there would be souls over there peering through these periscopes who were damned evil. I'm like, what was what 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 gives with someone like Hitler? Um, you know, what, what is that? You would think that it would be quite different, but it's so violent and so, un, so chaotic. And, and it suggests to me that there may be more than meets the eye here. Oh, you know what we can do before we start talking? We can dispense with the second break at last. So free dreamlanders will be right back. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition. Very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me, it's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it, and I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion, listen to it, read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. UnknownCountry.com subscribers have access to a vast treasury of information. Listen to what Dr. Robert Schock said. He's an expert on the past, and for that reason, he also knows a great deal about the future. We are re-entering, as you say, a debris field, and when you have a debris field like this, it enters the solar system, it energizes the solar system as you have things um, going into the sun, even clouds of dust particles, for instance, it will energize the sun, it will destabilize the sun. This is what we saw at the end of the last ice age in approximate terms about 13,000 years ago. And just in the past few days, more enormous meteors have been sighted, and this goes on continuously, more and more every year. We live in a time of great change in a world that doesn't like to look at things as they are. UnknownCountry.com offers extraordinary information, a vast archive that you cannot find anywhere else. Subscribe today. Help keep this website going because without you, there is and can be no us. Go to unknowncountry.com right now. Click on the subscribe tab. Get started. Before the break, we were just about to talk about what the problem of evil. What about 
evil souls and using bodies to penetrate into this world. Why would a thing like that even happen? So go well, ahead, you, you were about to say. It, it's something that I haven't given a lot of focus to lately. Um, I would say that my my sense of it, there, there may be more than one answer to the question. Um, on, the, on, the, on one end, or perhaps at one extreme, there may be souls who consciously have incarnated to do a dirty job in order to precipitate certain crises that are necessary for our collective evolution. That's one theory. The other side of it would be the incarnation of souls that have simply not evolved beyond um, the, the framework of what we call human ego. They're souls that are that are armored, you might say, against yeah. their own their own self, and and come through in a, a highly with a highly illusory framework of, of reality, all based on uh, a narcissistic attachment to their particular experience and viewpoint and human identity. Um, I I honestly can't judge you know who's who. Or what motivates a given individual? Um, some people theorize that, uh, for all of his evil, um, the timing of Hitler's incarnation and political involvement and so on uh, vaccinated the planet against um, nuclear energy in the hands of the of the Nazis. That's an interesting know. idea. No, that's fascinating. Okay. I, I don't know. I can't. I can't judge this. These. These are. You know. This may be rationalizations. Um, they may. There may be a, an element of truth to them. Uh, there, it. It hasn't been a focus of mine. Let's say. But we, you're also implying that there may be a level of, of, uh, if you will, consciousness and our understanding of the mechanisms that are uh, at at large in the in the world that. Is governing this in ways that we wouldn't expect. Like it could be that these these things are experiences that have a value uh, that the wars and so forth do something to build many souls. That in other words, people people are are uh, they need this kind of, of of thing in order to evolve in some way. I don't know. But there's so much that we don't know. Uh, I'd like to go on now to the skull experiment. And before we do that, folks, I would like to remind you that I've interviewed on this program twice a physical medium called Stuart Alexander. First, I interviewed Stuart when he his book was published at the recommendation of Leslie Kane, the New York Times reporter who has been involved with Stuart for many, many years. And he is certainly a very effective physical medium because the second interview came after I visited his seance, which is private. And he, they rarely have guests, which tells you something about his motives as well, because not only is it private, nobody pays anything. And so he's not in it for the money. He does on rare occasions, he does public demonstrations, but I don't think he's done one in years. So it's not really that. Uh, 
And at that demonstration, then this is, Dan, just so you know, is a classic, like late 19th century mediumship situation uh, where there's a table and there are uh, spirit uh, trumpets and drum, drum uh, sticks on the table and bells, something right out of, uh, right out of 1895. Now, the spirit trumpets came to life before my eyes and began to fly around the room and they flew up near the ceiling down. And I thought to myself, this has to be impossible. I'm seeing some, it, no matter how extraordinary it looks, it has to be some kind of a trick. Whereupon the spirit trumpet, there was only one of them flying around at that point, came in front of me moved itself up against my nose and went rubbing me up and down. And I realized it's rubbing itself in my nose. It is literally, and I, then I thought, no, this is no magic trick. This is real. And there were many things during the course of that night that were beyond belief uh, and they happened. And Leslie, of course, has seen much more, even to the extent of seeing individuals who are identified as from the other side coming physically into the into the room and actually sitting down in a chair in the room in the presence of everyone so the other world is there it exists and not only that it can manifest in certain ways in the physical world which gets me to the school experience which is a marvelous story well um that's a hard one to follow <laughs> oh no it's not 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 with the skull material the skull yeah. material trumps it all the way i'm just i i i tried to tell that story so that people could understand this is not theoretical and it's not fake it's not magic tricks we're talking about something real this show is a, a lot of this show is about empowerment and this is intended to empower you so go ahead let's get deeply into the school experiments well the school experiment was was an attempt um to uh to bring physical mediumship up to a new level and to, and to do it in a new way uh the traditional um sort of mechanics of physical mediumship uh involve ectoplasm and so forth which you're familiar with uh, that, yes. that can then form itself into into physical form, physical shapes, and so on, uh, can allow individuals to materialize, and so on. Skull experiment, um, in their words, was an experiment in just using energy, not ectoplasm. And of course, energy can can mean many things, but that I was how they put it. I think we'd better do a little aside. And can you explain for our listeners what ectoplasm is? I know what it is, and you know what it is, but I'm not sure everyone does. Okay, ectoplasm is a sort of um, oh, cottony matter that is said to be emanated by a, a physical medium during the seance. And um, what it's made of, I don't know. Some people say it's made out of water vapor. Some people say it's been analyzed in this and that way. But whatever it is, it has the capacity to take form. Uh, no, I've seen for the duration of, of, of the seance. And sometimes those forms are very convincingly solid and look nothing like cottony 
clouds, very, very, very solid. Um, how the energy in the skull experiment worked, um, I don't think we have language for, but it worked. Um, basically, um, the, the location for the experiment was a particular house in this tiny town of Skold. You'll see it in my documentary, um, which is said to have been located at the intersection of two ley lines. Now, ley lines are said to be uh, flows of energy in the earth. Uh, again, that we our contemporary science can't detect with its instruments, but individuals can can be sensitive to, apparently. Um, so the location was important. Uh, the, the work was done in a, um, the, the house was built in the 1600s. It had this wonderful old dark brick cellar below ground, which was an ideal venue for this experiment. It was very quiet. Uh, other energies, including radio broadcasts and so on, uh, were very much attenuated and minimized in that environment. Um, and the, the key to the experiment was, was the cooperation of two teams, the, the, the mediums on this side for two couples, actually four individuals mainly, um, and a group on the other side that was organized by a, um, a Victorian lady named Emily Bradshaw, who uh, lived in the 19th century and a team of uh, people with various Special, special, specialized talents, um, engineers, photographers, and so on, who had passed um, in within the past hundred years or so. Uh, and they were from the British Isles, North America, and Indian India, mostly English-speaking countries. And uh, they each had their own specialties. One, for example, was talented at um, making his voice. Uh, come out of thin air in the room, not through the mediums. Um, others had a talent of uh, producing photographs on sealed rolls of film, both, both photographs and, and um, whimsical puzzles and diagrams and all kinds of information on these sealed rolls of photographic film. You'll, you'll see this in my documentary. Um, and um, the, whole, the whole thing was, was very lighthearted. There was a lot of humor a lot of uh, conversation back and forth. And, uh, oh, let's see, there are other things such as uh, apports, um, uh, objects which were apported. Then this is a, uh, the language of mediumship is, is French influenced. C'est la, la These, um, these uh, objects were brought apparently from distant places in space and time and simply dropped onto the seance table, the session table that they had in their in their cellar. Um, and you can see a whole collection of these objects in, in the film. Um, they um, what else? They were they were asked um, the spirit team asked the skull group um, not to have any electrical devices in the room, not to not to have any electric lights, not even infrared, which they said would be, would impede their work. So most of this work had to be done in, in pretty much near darkness. Uh, they, they took great pains to um, eliminate fraud and faking by having luminous tabs, dim luminous tabs attached to every movable object in the room. Everyone wore um, luminous uh, bra um, 
bands around their wrists. Which that's, how, that's how Stuart works, too. Mm -hmm. And I have to ask you this. Uh, why is it necessary for it to be so dark? Well, according to the spirit team, um, they wanted a, as as little amount of, of spurious energies of any kind in the room, whether it was radio communications or visible light or even infrared light. Now, they, they made some exceptions in the course of doing certain experiments. And they would allow, for example, they allowed uh, a 35 millimeter film camera into the room uh, for some of the photographic experiments. Um, they, at one point, they allowed them to bring in a VHS uh, videotape camera for some of the other experiments. And you'll see some of the results in, in my film. Um, and uh, there were some tape recorder, one tape recorder documented every one of these sessions continuously. And another small cassette type recorder was used, um, only its amplifier was used to bring voices through from the other side. And um, in, one, in one instance, uh, one of the, oh, I should mention, by the way, that the, the experiment, which ran for five years, was monitored for two years solidly by a team of three investigators from the British Society for Psychical Research. And these were <clears throat> well-educated, skeptical guys who know all the tricks that, that fake mediums can, can pull. Uh, but they, they gave the experiment a clean bill of health. And, and one of them, who was an electrical engineer, at one point asked the spirit team, well, how can we, how can we improve the reception of this particular device? And so what came through on the next roll of photographic film was a diagram indicating how they might improve the, the effectiveness of this device. And on the end of the roll, end of the film, were the initials TAE. So um, the investigators um, from the SPR sent, sent away to the Edison Memorial Foundation um, to get a, a sample of Edison's actual signature, and it matched. Oh, my goodness. On the film, right. <laughs> Edison's right. still active. Uh, right. And in one of these films, they got an, a, a, a long poem, ran the full length of the film, um, that was signed W.W., William Wordsworth, and they found that this was actually a variation on one of his most well-known poems. So it goes on and on and on. And on. Do you recall? Um, Ruth, I think, was Ruth, the name. Oh, yes. Poem. Okay. Um, so, the, but it, it wasn't. It wasn't a, a literal um, copy of it. It was a variation on it. Yes. I think was the the uh, we're uh, our free listeners are about to leave the show or behind forever. Perhaps not forever. Uh, and can you tell us about a little bit more about the film and where we can see it? Well, the the Skoll film is called Skoll, the Afterlife Experiment. And there's an abbreviated link for it. It's bit.ly slash Skoll movie. S-C-O-L-E-M-O-V-I-E. It's bit.ly slash Skull movie, and that will get okay. you there. It's on Vimeo. Well, I'm going to read a couple of lines from Ruth, even though these are not. This is a variant. I understand. Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, uh, from the. It's a rather long poem. Uh, 
So through dream and vision did she sink, delighted all the while to think that on those lonesome floods and green savannas, she should share his board with lawful joy and bear his name in the wild woods. And I think that captures a little bit of the magic of what we are speaking about, which is the magic of being human in this wonderful mystery. I can tell you from experience that as soon as Anne reached the other side, the first thing I felt from her was a burst of great happiness. And on that note, Dan, we're going to leave our free listeners behind. As always, I suggest to you that you subscribe to unknowncountry.com and keep us going. I know a lot of you have been doing that lately, and I'm so grateful. Uh, more of you could do it because we have on this show 100,000 listeners, uh, a few video viewers, uh, a couple thousand but most of you are listening now, and that's a big podcast. We have just about a thousand subscribers, just one percent. Would be wonderful if you could make it two percent. That would be that would mean we could afford to do things like make an app, which I would just love to do. We'll see you again next week. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>